This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Megan Gibson, executive editor of Foreign in London. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. And I'm Harry Lambert, Senior Correspondent for Politics based in Westminster in London. It's Wednesday, the 16th of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, an international news podcast. Every Wednesday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Once again, Ukraine's President Zelensky has asked for more help from the West. Today, it's not enough to be the leader of the nation. Today, it takes to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Peace in your country doesn't depend anymore only on you and your people. It depends on those next to you, on those who are strong. How will the West respond? Do recent comments from both Russia and Ukraine indicate a peace deal is possible? Meanwhile, the war has created millions of refugees in a matter of weeks. Nations with large Ukrainian diasporas, such as Poland and Canada, have pledged to do all they can. But will it be enough? Over two million Ukrainians have fled their homes. It is a refugee crisis across this region. You need to know, as I have said today, that Canada is here to help. We also take a listener question on the difficult position China finds itself in. Thank you for joining us. So Harry, as our guest today on The World Review, I'd like to start with you. At the beginning of the the opening there, we heard a clip from President Zelensky referencing the help he's already requested from the West and asking for more help from Congress. Now, this is something you've been reporting on from the UK side in Westminster recently. What have you learned about the UK's position in your reporting? So I think, let's start with what Zelensky wants. He has clearly stated, and he said it again in a a remarkable video he showed to Congress, he wants the skies over Ukraine to be closed. So if you look at what that really means, we, I think because of things like the Battle of Britain, associate 
closing the skies with fighter aces in the you know in their planes, uh, taking one one another out in, in direct combat. But I think the thing I've been realizing over the last week or so, as I talk to military experts, is that so much of bombardment and shelling and missile launches that are happening in Ukraine are actually coming from ground-based systems. So it's it's not quite as simple as just providing planes. Uh, and in any case, on the UK side, we can't do that. We can only help encourage others who have the relevant planes and also anti-air systems to provide those to Ukraine. So all the UK is really able to do at the moment is, is provide much simpler weapons, namely the uh, the NLAW, which is an anti-tank missile. So I think the, the big frustration with the UK's response for both people in government and outside is that there's not a huge amount we can do to directly help Ukraine close its sky. Can I jump in there just to say, I think, I think Harry makes an important point here about, I think Lawrence Friedman is, is the person who's put this best, talking about it's not that Ukraine needs a, a no-fly zone on its own, it would need a no-artillery zone to be right. able to, to stop some of the most serious attacks that we're seeing happening there. And I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more, Harry, about the reporting you've been doing on on the, the public mood in the UK and what how that is driving the political equation here. What are you learning about, about public attitudes towards providing more support for Ukraine? Yes, yeah, so it's really interesting, I think, that the, the British public's, I think, uh, in many ways more hawkish than the average politician in the UK. Around 70 to 75% believe we should be doing more to arm the Ukrainians. People are very um, much in favour of economic sanctions, around 75-80%. And we just had a, a poll run for us by YouGov that showed around 50% of the population want us to facilitate the transfer of, of those fighter jets to Ukraine from Poland and other countries that have relevant aircraft. And only 26% oppose that. The public want action. And it's understandable they would because of the, the scenes we're seeing every day. But I think also the interesting thing talking to British officials is that, that they're not sitting back and holding their hands up. They're definitely doing everything they can, I think, to make efforts and to help in, 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 in the ways they can. They're having meetings every single day, thinking about what else they can provide. But I think the, the, the crucial point to remember here is just because we failed as the West to, to train Ukrainians in advanced military capabilities and to sell them equipment for many years. We're now playing catch up and it is hard to give Ukrainians sort of some of the higher end equipment we have because they just don't have time to, to be trained in it. There's, a, I guess, a lot we could unpack there. There is one thing I want to jump in and pick up your point on the public being more hawkish. I think that is a really good point to make and to differentiate about public attitudes. And also, you have to realize that the public are speaking usually from a much more emotional place. They're, we're all seeing on Twitter, on the evening news, these images out of Ukraine that are horrifying. And there's, I think that creates a real sense of helplessness and urgency. And that can tend to manifest itself in, in, in this urge to do something. But I think lots of times people no, I don't want to say people aren't informed, but they don't understand or don't really grasp the consequences. You mentioned a YouGov poll in the UK. There was a YouGov poll on American attitudes, and it found that the number of Americans who supported a no-fly zone decreased by 10% after it was clarified to them what a no-fly zone actually entails and that it would actually mean the US military would be shooting down Russian military aircraft over Ukraine. So I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that sometimes what the public pressure to do isn't always what is actually the right thing to do. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And, and Tom Nichols, the naval professor and Atlantic writer, has a good line on this. He said, this is why we pay diplomats, because they're, they're trained to think of this with a cool head. But I do think at the same time, someone said to me last week, we live in democracies, ultimately. And if politicians feel that pressure coming from the ground, that they do need to act, then you do see more, more stringent actions. And Biden obviously committing another 800 million in aid today. And that comes from the public pressure he's feeling. So you're right, we need to differentiate, but at the same time, one leads to the other, doesn't it? One thing we've just seen here in the US today is uh, Volodymyr Zelensky addressing Congress as another really powerful speech that was, I mean, notable in how he has tailored his specific message each time, addressing the, the British Parliament, invoking Churchill, addressing Congress today. He's touched on these really keystone issues in American politics. So he's made comparisons to Pearl Harbor, to September 11th. He touched on Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. He's really trying to frame this as a challenge that goes far beyond Ukraine. And he, he said that directly, that you know, peace in the world now depends um, not just on what happens in your own country, but also what happens here. He's really trying to define this and frame this as a battle for broader liberal democratic values than just Ukraine's fight. And it's striking how within that, he's really pivoting to quite specific asks. So he did once again ask to close the skies as the, the phrase that, that he's using. But he then shifted quite quickly to more concrete and probably more feasible requests, such as the, you know, he just threw in there and you have the S-300 surface to air missile system. We, we need air defenses. So I think he is really showing the power of his words. And I guess the, the front on which he is fighting is trying to make this fight seem personal and seem relevant to every other country that could help. And then to back this up with, and here are the specific weapons systems and the military aid that we're asking for. So I think it, it's striking to see how he is, I guess this is what he can do, various... Ukrainians are, are queuing up to, to volunteer in various capacities. I said recruiting officers all over the country, but I guess this is what this is what Zelensky Zelensky can do and is perhaps uniquely qualified to do is to communicate this message and to understand what are the specific strands that that he needs to hit in these ongoing appeals. Yeah, I think it, what's really striking with Zelensky, and we've said it before on the podcast, is just how well he does when he's tailoring his message and and what he's trying to say. It was striking the difference in his message today to Congress than it was yesterday to Canada's parliament, where the basics he was calling for were very much the same thing, a no-fly zone, more military aid. But the language that he used was much more tailored to a Canadian audience. And obviously he used Canadian-specific references. He talked about to ask, ask Parliament to imagine if they saw the CN Tower in Toronto being bombed. And it, it was just a striking difference from the much more elevated patriotic speech that he made to the US today. So he really does know how to, to play to his audience. And that's the thing I think we have to remember about Zelensky, what he's asking for. He's doing whatever he can do in a very desperate situation. So while we can admire him and rally around him as much as we want and his rhetoric and admire him as a leader, I think Western politicians and governments all have to be very mindful about the broader situation and really work on 
containing the crisis rather than seeing it escalate. Well, I'd love to ask you a question about that. But just on Zelensky, I think there's this lovely quote, the statement, I think it's uh, King Henry um, IV, talking about Prince Howe, and he says, I can drink with any tinker in his own language. And that's what Zelensky's doing right now. Every time he addresses a different parliament, he's speaking that language, right? So when he spoke to, yeah. to Westminster and I was there, he, he, he was invoking Churchill and and as you say, he's shifting his register every time. It's really a masterclass in, in mm-hmm. leadership. And it's a great time to have a TV production company running a country. <laughs> These guys, <laughs> they really seem to understand the power of, of how to do this. But but Megan, can I ask you, you, know, you talk about, and Katie, you talk about wanting to contain this crisis. Where do you stand on the distribution of aid to, to Ukraine? Do you think we're doing enough? Do you think, are you, are you concerned that we may be doing too much and that we may be drawn into direct conflict, you dovish or hawkish on, on, on the supply of weapons? Well, I think we could definitely do a, be doing more in terms of supply of military aid, uh, non-lethal aid, more in terms of accepting refugees. I would never describe myself as hawkish. <laughs> and I, I definitely understand where Biden and NATO are correct to be extremely cautious in their actions. Right. I'd be very interested in what Katie thinks of this. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues, and I think this is something you've written about too, Harry, is the problem is now trying to do this really after the fact. It would have been one thing providing extensive military aid since 2014 when we saw what Russia was capable of in Ukraine. The real, I think, the danger of a potential flashpoint here is now, you know, those convoys and those supply, getting those supplies into Ukraine and in a way that, it, that doesn't leave them open to, to Russian strikes. I think that's the, the immediate danger for how this expands beyond Ukraine. And we've already seen the, the strike over the weekend very close to the border with Poland. There's a real danger in trying to get these supplies now into Ukraine and the quantity that they're needed want, now that the conflict is already raging. And I, I think one of the one of the unintended consequences that may flow from this looking more broadly and looking, for instance, to, to Taiwan's situation is really making sure that doesn't happen, that the supplies, these the defensive supplies and what Taiwan talks about this, this kind of porcupine strategy of the idea that you make the cost of an attack so heavy that that's how you deter it, is to make clear that the island would have the ability to defend itself, that it is robustly armed and that its population would resist. I think you're going to see that taken taken much more seriously. Um, but it, you know, it's, yeah, there, there is a real danger that this does expand beyond Ukraine's territory. But that's also, that's an angle that Putin is specifically and deliberately exploiting. I think when we saw him quite early on raise the alert status of, of the nuclear forces, that was intended as a really clear signal to Western powers to be very careful about how you intervene here because you know, he, he wants the rest of the world to believe that he is prepared to take action beyond Ukraine's borders if it's needed. So I think it still remains a very dangerous, quite precariously balanced situation. Uh, and just on that, I don't want to get too lost into the nuclear debate, but I, the thing I, I yet haven't worked out, and maybe you guys have, is should he invade the Baltics or a NATO country? Of course, he would have nuclear weapons then too. And it's the Western position, essentially, that we're willing to accept that threat of nuclear war then because of NATO. And yeah, are people sort of ready for that? Are people really ready for the fact that people are absolutely terrified, quite rightly, of 
potential nuclear conflict now, but wouldn't the same sort of threats be in place in any NATO retaliation? They would, but that is the point of the alliance. That is why the alliance is together. And Putin knows that. And I think it's the responsibility of the West to always ensure that the if anyone is going to escalate this, it is Putin, that we are not baited into right. letting this spiral into something unsustainable. Putin knows what would happen if he would attack a NATO country. And that's what Article 5 is for. That's It would turn into nuclear powers mm-hmm. fighting one another. And you ask if people are ready for that. I don't think anyone is really ready for the area we're, we've suddenly found ourselves in and the discussions that we are have, we've been having the last um, four weeks. And that's on us. Maybe we should have been more ready for this. Maybe this is a discussion that we should have been having a lot longer ago, certainly since 2014. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things that's so important about the response now and the message that you would hope, although it's not clear, is being taken in both Russia and China is the, the, the strength with which we see in the West respond. I think when you saw Putin and Xi had this summit at the start of February before the Beijing Winter Olympics, I don't think they expected, and I'll be honest, I didn't expect that the West would respond to the extent that it has. I think the calculation um, that they have long been making is that the West is, it's decadent, it's in decline, it's consumed by domestic political divisions, polarized, it's not going to be capable of mounting a a meaningful response. And I, I think if you were looking at this in cold, hard, high level terms, before the start of it, you might well have come to the conclusion that this was this was the least worst time for Russia to attempt this because the West did seem to be quite divided. And I think you could have made a, a strong argument that the dependence of, of so much of Europe on Russian gas would mean they were very reluctant to hit back with any meaningful sanctions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, that calculation has been proved wrong, but I think it's one going to be one of the important issues to come out of this is just really reiterating both to Moscow and to Beijing that there will be a serious cost to pay and that the West, I th- think to some extent, some parts of the West are su- surprised themselves with the response that they've been able to come up with. This is reinvigorating alliances like like NATO and giving them giving them a real purpose for existence once again. And that, that certainly isn't in China's interests to see, but you, you would hope that message, that message is getting through, although that's debatable. But I'd love to just bring in another angle of the conflict to talk about with you both, which is to look at the unfolding refugee crisis that we're now seeing. I think more than 3 million Ukrainians, by the latest figures, have already fled the country in the last three weeks. Megan, I wonder if you could talk a bit first about about the response we've seen from Canada um, and the diaspora community there, because I know, I think, they've said they they are prepared to resettle an unlimited number of Ukrainians, but it seems like that's already running into some degree of bureaucratic difficulties. Yeah, it definitely has. But yeah, you're right on both fronts. Canada's immigration minister said in in early March that Canada was prepared to welcome an unlimited number of refugees from Ukraine. And this largely stems from the fact that Canada is home to the second largest population of Ukrainian diaspora in the world, Russia being the first. And This is, I think it's something like 1.4 million Canadians claim to be part of the diaspora, so they are, they're Ukrainian. This is the result of 
waves of immigration beginning from the 19th century when essentially Canada tried to lure Ukrainians to populate the prairie states in the middle of the country. And then there were subsequent waves after the First World War, the Second World War, and then after the cl collapse of the Soviet Union in, in 1991. So there is a very large, very vocal Ukrainian population within Canada. And it's very well integrated. The kind of the support for this announcement and the question of whether they would do this or not. They've run into a lot of bureaucratic hurdles since announcing that they were going to throw open the doors and welcome an unlimited number. So the government created a visa scheme allowing Ukrainians to live, work and study for two years in the country. But they haven't provided funding for travel, which is how most refugee schemes within Canada works, thrown up a hurdle. And they haven't actually been able to launch the platform in which people can apply for the scheme. And that's supposed to happen until tomorrow. But as we've seen from photos and videos from Ukraine, the, the situation in the country is increasingly bad. So this is urgently needed. And then they also have some issues where they haven't allowed visa-free travel. So these Ukrainian refugees need to have their visas in place before they can travel to Canada. And that's creating a lot of hurdles and headaches already. So it's a bit kind of like what we've seen with the UK, where even the best of intentions and the best of plans, although the UK definitely initially had, you know, I guess quite a bit of shambles, you could say, of a scheme, even when it tried to accelerate, it's still seeing a lot of, of, of bureaucratic headaches and hurdles, albeit from very different situations. But I think it just shows another example of how the world just, it, it was not prepared for this war. It was not, no one expected the invasion, least of all Ukraine, least of all most Russians, but the, the much of the West, even for all the intelligence in the US, they were not prepared for the scale. Harry, we'd love to be great to hear your thoughts on how the British aspect of this response has got to be. How would you sum up the, how the British government has responded? And I, and I guess it would also be interesting, given your reporting, do you think the kind of popular support we're seeing right now to do more for Ukraine, does that translate or could it translate into support to, to accommodate more refugees in the UK? Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Katie. I think the the first thing just to remember here when it comes to the refugee response is, is that we should have been prepared. Obama himself in 2016 said, and this is a quote, the fact is that Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country, is going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia no matter what we do. It, it was foreseen in many ways. Of course, the scale of the invasion is shocking, um, but it, it was foreseen that there may be a conflict. And therefore, things, you know, the Home Office in the UK certainly should have been prepared for being adaptive. I spoke to the Ukrainian ambassador a couple of days ago and he was saying that the problem is just that in normal times, most people's visas would be processed. But when consulates aren't open, then you can't obviously process passports and visas in the same way. He's asking for Britain to, to, to drop its visa requirement. I don't think that's going to happen, despite, as you say, Katie, there being quite a lot of support, in fact, unprecedented levels of support really for refugees coming to Ukraine around 50% of the population uh, say they would be happy with at least tens of thousands uh, of, of refugees to come and, and about 25%, I think it is, would be happy with hundreds of thousands. Just on this, the Ukrainian ambassador, for what it's worth, he, he, he referred to Canada 
and was saying, this isn't Canada. And he doesn't think there is going to be a huge number of people coming here. But of course, it's on Britain to, to be a welcoming home. And, and the government, in, in, in quite a slow way, is now trying to come up with some schemes to do that. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Okay, now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. A listener has submitted a question on China. Jamie from the Highlands of Scotland has asked, how strong really is the relationship between Putin and Xi Jinping? Can I firstly just interject as a Scottish Highlander myself to say it's fantastic to hear the Highlands of Scotland get a shout out. Jamie, thank you so much. Um, for your question, for reference listeners, I'm from the Black Isle. What's it like up there? I've never had a chance to get to the Highlands. It's amazing, but it's also very cold and a little bleak. But it's the, the greatest place, greatest place on the surface of the earth. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's quite an advert. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Believe that. Um, the, the Scottish Highlands are, are tremendous. D- so to, to Jamie's excellent question, um, not biased at, at all, as to how strong the relationship is between Putin and Xi, my honest answer is that... You, from everything that that we can see, it does appear there is a 
genuinely strong personal relationship between them. They have met 38 times over the last decade. There's an excellent story of how they first bonded supposedly at a Asian Asia Pacific Leaders Summit in 2013, and they apparently stayed up having shots of vodka and slicing sausage together. They do seem to have genuinely strong personal chemistry and compatible worldviews. I think the, the kind of statements that, that you hear from them and their vision for this, the global order that they're setting out, I think that's genuine. I think they really do believe it. We also hear from Chinese scholars that, that she is very admiring of Putin's strongman style and that's something he aspires to. He would like to be seen in a similar way. I think the real massive caveat to that is Xi Jinping is first and foremost interested in his own political system and China's interests. So at the point at which he believes the relationship with Russia is damaging that, it's absolutely possible that he will take steps to move away from it. The problem is that there is no indication he currently thinks that way. And a, a lot of the same pathologies that you see in the Russian system are there in China in terms of very personalized power in one man's hand at, at one man's hands and a, and a bureaucracy below him, which is really incentivized to tell him what he wants to hear and to reassure him and, and congratulate him on, on, on his wisdom rather than to, to challenge that. And the, and the greater concern from the Chinese perspective is always the United States. I think the Chinese political leadership is really genuinely convinced that the United States is set on long-term strategic rivalry with China. And in that context, the relationship with Russia suits China's interests, it helps them to balance, it helps them to push back against the US. So while I think looking at this in, in objective terms, the war in Ukraine and Russia's actions harm China's interests, I think at this stage, and it would be, it would be worth listeners reading the analysis that Huawei, Shanghai-based academic, has written and which is now on the New Statesman's website, and we can link to that in the show notes. This war is harming China's interests and his relationship with Xi's relationship with Putin is not serving China's interests, but there's no indication yet that he is making, that he is coming to that analysis and that he shows any sign of walking away from Putin and Russia in the near term. Katie, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. So a lot of, with, with the sanctions increasingly wreaking havoc on Russia and its economy, there's a lot of talk about Putin turning to China to plug the gaps in, it, in its trade and its, its imports, and that China will be very well placed to get the best deal possible for, himself, for itself at, for the detriment of Russia. And do you think that is a you know, kind of dynamic we could see and that that could somehow sour the relationship? Well, we, we saw this after 2014. We saw you know, this real pivot to the East is, is how Russian scholars describe it and a shift to China. And we did see China negotiate hard to get, a, to get a good deal on energy prices, natural gas in particular. I would expect China to try and walk a similar line where, you know, firstly, I don't think it's likely that we'll see them flagrantly violate sanctions. I think we'll continue to see them speak out very strongly against them, condemn them in rhetorical and diplomatic terms. But since 2014, and the indications are this is happening again now, major state-owned companies and Chinese banks have not violated sanctions um, mm -hmm. against Russia because they're concerned about themselves 
losing access to international financial systems and, and dollar denominated trade. So I think you will see China you know, condemn sanctions, but quietly for the most part abide by them and then try to get as many advantages as they can from their relationship. The, again, the, I think the bottom line from the Chinese uh, leadership's perspective is that they don't want to see Putin's regime collapse. They do value Russia as a partner in pushing back against the West. So I think within the confines of not themselves then being subject to, to, to penalties and really suffering, they're not going to cut Russia off. I think the idea that, that, that China is going to suddenly see the light and decide to pressure Russia in, into ending the war in Ukraine is, is really no basis to believe in that. I think we're going to see them continue to try to benefit where they can um, support Russia, where it doesn't overtly harm their own interests. And Russia is an important source of energy security for China. It's a white, it's a means of getting mm-hmm. oil, coal, and natural gas, and such that it can't be interdicted by the West. And so it's an important partner for for China. And I think while everything that you, when you look at this from the outside, it, it, it's easy to see that this is harming Chinese interests. I don't think that is the calculation currently being made in, in Beijing. Yeah, they'll definitely want to watch, especially this year as the party congress approaches in the autumn and the economic situation domestically for China continues to be a real problem. It will be interesting to see how Xi plays this. Yeah, this couldn't be worse timing. From China's perspective, ahead of there's a major um, party congress being held this autumn when Xi's expected to seek another five-year term in power. Ahead of that, he really would have hoped for a, a stable predictable international en- environment and, and a stable and predictable situation in China too, which is the opposite of what we're seeing now with a major war in Europe. And, and China has serious domestic problems right now with large-scale COVID outbreaks, downward pressures on its economy. So you know, this year, which is a crucial year for Xi Jinping, really could not have got off to much of a worse start. Well, that's reassuring. So that's a great question. So thank you, Jamie, for, for sending that in. Yeah, thanks to, to all of you who sent in your questions. Uh, listeners, you, like Jamie, can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for our next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.